0: awesome okay ready yep let's go let's laugh we are imperfect after all okay (laughs) hello and welcome to the imperfect us podcast i'm leanne camilleri and i'm lisa downs as hosts of the imperfect us podcast we share relatable stories that celebrate we are all perfectly imperfect humans leading perfectly imperfect lives we discover practical and evidence-based strategies that draw on the science of well-being and positive psychology that help us to uncover the barriers that might hold us back from being our authentic selves and turn them into opportunities so that we can show up more consistently doing what we really aspire to do and who we want to be.
1: We acknowledge the Waterrung and the Ghana people as traditional custodians of the beautiful lands on which this podcast is being recorded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to other First Nations people who are here with us today. So let's get started.
0: In today's episode, we are speaking with Caroline Adams-Miller. Caroline is one of the world's leading positive psychology experts on goals and grit. She is passionate about helping people get more grit, achieve their goals and find happiness. Caroline has spent 30 years helping people, individuals, leaders and companies to learn more about how to integrate the science of goal accomplishment. Caroline is a Harvard graduate and has a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of seven books, including Getting Grit, Creating Your Best Life and Positively, Caroline. Caroline's work has been featured in media around the world, including BBC World News, the New York Times, Washington Post, to name just a few. In 2014, Caroline was a TEDx speaker on the secrets that make champions welcome Caroline. it is so exciting to have you here um, we are really thrilled that you're with us today and we're just wondering would you be able to share with our listeners today what led you to do the wonderful work that you are doing?
2: Well I think like everyone else in life it's a journey that has many different kind of twists and turns and by the way thank you for having me I'm really honored to uh, be joining my friends in Australia here with this podcast but I became a coach after years of informally coaching people on things related to overcoming my eating disorder and going public. Mm -hmm. So in 1988, I wrote the first autobiography by any survivor of bulimia. It kind of cracked the world open, I have to say, because no one had ever formally talked about it or put a face or a name to it, or or there was no hope. It's hard to believe now, but people didn't have hope that they could overcome bulimia back in the 80s and Mm -hmm. 90s. Anyway, so people came to me, hundreds of thousands, letters, phone calls. I mean, it was started a nonprofit to just give people information. And that led me to finding out about coaching, executive coaching. I got trained as a coach. Then I became unhappy with the lack of empiricism and evidence-based work in the training for coaches. So I began to look around for, how can my clients who were, you know, mostly professionals with who had had a lot of hurdles to just get their degrees and whatever they were doing, lawyers, politicians, I mean, whatever it was. And so I ended up in the first class in the world in applied positive psychology, a master's in applied positive psychology at Penn. So that year, 2005, in many ways changed the course of my life because That was where I became acquainted with the science of flourishing. And then I connected it with the science of goal setting. And that, that was my capstone that became the book creating your best life, which was just reissued as a global bestseller on goal setting. And then, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's hard to believe. I just feel like my life has had so many twists and turns, but it led me into coaching, led me into positive psychology. Then it led me to focus on goal setting and then on grit, my book on getting grit. And now I'm also really doing what I can do to make a difference in the lives of women who need support from other women because I think this is a huge taboo problem that keeps a lot of women small. (laughs) And I think we in the field of positive psychology have been very slow to look at the gender differences in some of the research on flourishing. Yeah. And what a gift to be bringing to the world for women.
1: Caroline, we've been talking about how our imposter thoughts can either hinder or help us show up in the world.
0: And we were wondering
1: if you have a story of when you experienced imposter thoughts, and what did you learn about yourself at that time?
2: Well, I'm going to disappoint you. I don't have a single imposter story. What I do have are stories about when I've been unsure of myself, or um, scared, or over my head, or nervous. I mean, there are lots of times like that. I. I don't believe in the imposter syndrome. I think it, it is uh, just one of those things that happened to be, you know, coined in 1979. It was about women. It was mm-hmm. about women, professional women feeling over their heads in the workplace. But, and so it was designed to make women fix one more thing. And so for decades, <laughs> it's, impo- you know, imposter syndrome, this, and actually has no empirical evidence. So I, my stories are about feeling unsupported quite often at times in the workplace, in life. And I can think of a lot of examples of that, but I've never felt like an imposter. I think I've just felt unseen and that's a different kind of feeling. And I think it's got a different kind of solution. You
1: raise a really valid point about support and that came up in a different podcast that we had with Dr. Susie Green. And she talked about, you know, having that support can make a big difference in the experience that we have and whether we grow forward.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can talk to you about the gender differences in this because, you know, I used to think there was a confidence gap and there is some research supporting the idea that men are so cocky and so confident about their abilities to do things that they'll apply for jobs when they only have maybe 40% of the criteria Mm. and women won't apply till they have a hundred percent of the criteria. So, so I know that's out there, but I began to look a little bit more closely at the confidence research because I coach a lot of female C. CEOs and male CEOs. But I often find that it's not a confidence issue. It's about women don't know who has their back. Women don't know who will support them. Women wonder when the knives are coming out. And there's a lot of good reasons why they're, they're concerned about that. So I don't think it's confidence. I think it's concern. And so we know from the research, there's biosocial theory, there's the Disney rule, there's scarcity theory, there's the black sheep effect. I mean, there's so much out there in terms of research, even kicking and climbing women assigned to female mentors in male dominated professions, don't get climbing and lifting, they get kicking and climbing. So women begin to really wonder who out here among women is not going to shoot at me inside of the tent because women do get penalized for being goal-directed and ambitious and proud. And when you do, we find that women often go passive and silent in the face of another woman's success and uh, leads an awful lot of women um, to think, well, do I deserve to be here? Maybe if all these people are silent or not happy for me, You know, maybe I don't deserve to be here when in fact, I think we can learn to behave differently and override some of our biological wiring, which does lead to scarcity theory, only one seat at a table of power for women, but we can override that and begin to act as if that's not true because if our wiring that's only responsible for some of how women treat other women. If we if we override our wiring, we can begin to act as if there's room for two sparkly princesses in the same room, not just one. And the Disney rule is at Disney, when you're drawing a princess, you can't draw two of them looking in the same direction in any picture because that means they're in the same room and that that can't happen. You can't have two women in the same room looking in the same direction, only one. (laughs) So anyway, there's a lot of priming. There's a lot of, you know, gender. I could go on and on about it, but I don't think we have imposter syndrome to the extent people have believed it's true. I think we just don't know how to behave when other women are successful or have big ideas. And that's Mm. a different conversation.
1: You raise a really interesting perspective, I think, because, you know, do we just go to, imposter syndrome because we don't have that label we know it feels yucky or you know we we know we feel uncomfortable we feel unsupported we feel unsure Mm -hmm. having that understanding that we just have that bit of support from someone seeing that in each other perhaps and, and supporting can change the whole dynamic of a situation
2: Well, it can change a lot of things. You know, it's my friend, Dr. Lee Waters. We were just speaking about her before Mm. we started this interview who just became a member of the Order of Australia. Really proud of her and (laughs) happy for her. And she, you know, started the positive psychology program at the University of Melbourne, et cetera, et cetera. But we were driving from my home in Washington, DC up to the University of Pennsylvania where we were both doing a book signing. She had her book come out and I had, you know, one of my books come out same time. And we were doing a book signing together. And I was talking to her about the fact that women have this, you know, they're, we're wired for tend and befriend. That's very famous research mm-hmm. that when women are together, they tend to each other and they befriend each other in times of difficulty. That's when oxytocin is released. So, on a chemical level, women need other women, but we're more likely to come to their aid and their defense when they're wounded. So Lee turned to me and she said, we don't have the gene for believe and achieve. And I always give her credit because it's brilliant and that she's right. So we're wired to take care of women when they're hurting, but when they're succeeding, we don't have the alternate or alternative to tend and befriend. And I I think it's something we can learn because when we are interrupted or mansplained or silenced or shushed, or we're not allowed to be an expert and we're, you know, dominated by others in meetings. And we just think, oh, if I work hard, I'm going to get noticed, you know, then your voice often doesn't make it out of the crowd. And if your friends aren't uplifting you And sharing your good news on their social media, then you're not going to be discovered to be a panelist at a conference. You're not going to be quoted as an expert in a newspaper. Your work will not get found. There will continue to be a pay gap. And so I think in many ways, although Me Too and Time's Up they had their place, I think too often we're overlooking the fact that women are not sharing other women's successes for a variety of reasons, some conscious, some unconscious Mm -hmm. that are keeping us all small and down. And I think if we were to reverse that behavior or override that behavior, we wouldn't be talking about imposter syndrome. We would be talking about believe and achieve, and we would be learning new ways from little girls up to talk not about mean girls as if it's a thing, you know, this is just a thing. This is just what girls and women do. It's a thing. Let's just, that's the way it is. Uh, cattiness. There isn't even a word to describe, you know, analogous behavior among men, cattiness, mean girls. I mean, Madeline, I, I hate to go on a diatribe here, but I get very angry. That's great. Madeline Albright. I, I grew up with Madeline Albright. Her twin daughters were classmates of mine in a small school in Washington, DC for nine years. And, Madeleine Albright was the first woman to show me in real time, up close, that you could go from carrying around a baby in a bassinet, their little sister, Katie, to going back to school, becoming a professor, and then going on to be the most powerful woman at the time in the history of American government. And and she was very verbal about the fact that the mean girl mothers, many of whom were mothers of my friends, and maybe even my mother, I don't know, just just denigrating her. Where's your fruitcake recipe, et cetera, et cetera. She never got over the meanness that was expressed by the mothers in my time period. And that's where she came up with the quote, there's a place in hell for women who don't support other women. And the week she died a few weeks ago was the week the Mean Girls play with Tina Fey opened at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. Now, why is there no play or musical about mean boys? Why do we keep acting as if this is a thing that's inevitable. The more we behave that way, the more we'll just take it for granted. And the more we're going to just basically overlook some of the issues in the workplace that ought to be addressed earlier and more often and aggressively, instead of saying that's the way women are, take the toxic person out of the workplace. And let other women thrive. Anyway, that's that's enough.
1: I can see how things can be misinterpreted for different things. You know, I guess, are we misinterpreting imposter syndrome for other things?
2: Could be. Yeah. I mean, because if, if you ask people, when have you felt like an imposter, you're giving them the language of being an imposter. It's like asking people when they've been bullied. Maybe they've never been bullied, but suddenly now, well, maybe I have been bullied. <laughs> let's mm, let me yeah. think of something. So I'm, I'm not saying don't do this. I'm saying let's think about it differently because it has been around for decades. But we have to go back to the. The origin of imposter syndrome, and it was in 1979, it was designed to make women, executive professional women, look at why they felt overlooked and unseen in the workplace. Mm. And maybe it was the conditions of the workplace and not the women. Yeah, the root of the cause, really, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Why give us one more thing we have to fix about ourselves? <laughs> I know. You know. we be sexy. Do we have muscles. It. Yeah, you <laughs> got to take bioidentical hormones. You've got to have sex into your 70s. I mean, it's endless. This self-improvement is endless. We can at mm-hmm. least get rid of imposter syndrome. <laughs> yes. I think so and I really love
0: and I wonder if you could actually share a little bit more about this your believe and achieve mindset. Yeah. I think that's such a really something that we really need to explore a bit further and I do love that tend and befriend. I think that is just wonderful.
2: Yeah. Well, so how do we believe and achieve? I came up with a made up word that I think expresses what I hope will be the future. I looked a lot at mentorship and sponsorship and I found that there's even research on this, a lot of women who say they're mentoring other women in the workplace. When researchers went in to study this mentoring, they often couldn't find the mentees. So it was easier to say you were a mentor than to actually be a mentor. And I think that's because women are told from the time they're very young about the sisterhood and supporting other women. We, We raise women to be communal, to take care of other people, to be affiliative. And so I realized there's a real problem with mentoring because I, I, do, I do know a lot of women who hear other successful women on podcasts and this woman on the podcast will say how much she mentors and sponsors and say, no, she doesn't. So I, what I realized is the big gaping hole that leads to how do we believe and achieve is that you have to have witnesses to your behavior in order for it to really exist. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that the word Ampliship Really encapsulates what I think we need to do more of, and even included in performance reviews because ampliship is the act of amplifying. And I'm I'm going to speak on women right now, but I think you know this does apply to men, but more to women because men are more transactional. If you get a piece of pie, I know I'll get a piece of pie. Women go, you got a piece of pie? Where's you know there'll be no pie for me. So amplification is really about amplifying another woman's ideas or successes in front of other people. Because you can't say it happened and, and prove it without witnesses, because there's all kinds of research on witnessing other you know good generative behaviors. I think it would do that. But I also think that when you amplify other people's ideas, this is what happens happened in the Obama White House, women would agree ahead of time to go into a meeting and make sure that other women's ideas were repeated with her name attached to it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it was about amplification. So the article that ran in the New York Times about this had the most extraordinary hundreds and hundreds of comments roll in about it saying, where do we find women like this?
1: Yeah, I've think- talked about that article in some diversity and inclusion stuff that I've done and Obama and his women. I think that was the article It's incredible stuff to support each other in, in that type of environment.
2: It's not that common. If it were, I think people wouldn't be so undone. When it's like, where do I find people like this? When Miss Universe in 2019, December 2019, I think Miss Virgin Islands won and Miss Jamaica was running in circles, laughing and crying and clapping her hands at the, this. And you would think from watching this that she had won, but she was Excited because her friend had won and she was the first runner up, and she was overwhelmed with joy for her friend. That clip went viral with the same comment, which is, Why don't we have more examples of this? Where do I find a best friend like this? And so I don't think it's as com- I think this is the kind of behavior we long for, and I don't think it's as common as it could be. I'll just leave it there. I
0: agree with you. And I was just thinking when you were talking about it, my heart space really felt, what can I do now to make that better? We talked about Lee Waters just before. We talked about Michelle McQuaid, Susie Green, a whole lot of people, yourself, my goodness, you guys have made huge impacts in the world. And if we're celebrating that further, that also amplifies our own thought processes to become Better ourselves and support other women. Mm -hmm. Imagine a world where that's happening all of the time. You know, will that shift? And let's the hope of the shifting that lens on women, because women are extraordinary leaders in whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, we get quashed down quite a lot from a lot of males.
2: Mm. Well, we get, oh, we get okay. mansplained. We get, we get interrupted. I mean, this is one of the, the reasons why I wrote my most recent book, hashtag I have your back mastermind success groups for women, because mm. not enough women are in mastermind groups where their own individual goals and ideas are celebrated and supported by other women who have what Shelly Gable calls active, constructive, responding, curiosity, mm. and enthusiasm when they hear about another woman's good news or, or big idea. And of women say they're surrounded by frenemies, friends who are enemies, who don't do this act of constructive responding. And so I really do believe the answer to some of is about women getting into mastermind groups and having the experience of speaking about their goals and dreams without being interrupted. I mean, the damage from being interrupted is stunning if you look at that research, but it's even worse if another woman witnesses a woman being interrupted and mansplained and doing nothing about it. So you you would leave a meeting with double wounds. But the Brigham Young University Gender Lab did some stunning research on this that blew my mind. I, I wrote to Adam Grant not long after I read it. It's like, what do you know about this? And do you have more information? He's the one who sent me the research on kicking and but you know what they found is that in these groups that they put people in and gave them a topic to discuss, they found overwhelmingly that in groups, men always dominated the airtime. They chose to lean in because they expected to lean in. They expected their views to be included. They expected to be heard and listened to, and women were interrupted. And here's the downstream effect of that. And this is what led Brigham Young to say they'll never ever, ever do groups that have more men than women in them because of what they found. They found that these women in these groups who went back and they and they said, well, who are the experts in this room? Who are the most influential thinkers in this room? It was always correlated with who took the most airtime talking in the groups. And so what does that say? Mm-hmm. It says that You have to be a little bit of a blowhard in order for other people um, to believe that you are an expert. And if women are getting interrupted and they're not, you know, heard, how in the world do they ever get seen and supported for their ideas? They get overlooked. We just lived through the Donald Trump presidency. I mean, what kind of stark, you know, contrast can you have between someone who was so overconfident about anything he did? ever done, but it, it played his competence and he got a lot of votes for competence. Whereas a woman who's agentic, Hillary Clinton, big goal, biggest goal, you know, most empowerful office in the world, quite honestly, you know, the researchers all told her that you are going to be taken down by other women by men, because you are daring to go for the most important job in the world. So when she didn't win, there was tend to be right? Everybody came Yay. out, oh, I would have voted for you, whatever, whatever. Anyway, back to, I think women tend to get interrupted. And as a result, the downstream effect is they're not seen as experts and they don't see themselves as experts. And that might lead them to think they're imposters. But it all really starts with how they're being treated and how they allow themselves to be treated and not deliberately placing themselves in environments where they know people have their backs or in a mastermind group that's self formed. And that's what my most recent book is about how to form it and why you've got to form it.
1: I can see how that could either hinder or fire up grit. You know, I think what makes me gritty definitely seeing other people go before me and achieving some sort of success. That gives me confidence that if I try a bit harder, if I keep at it, there's going to be some sort of reward you know, or achievement at the end. But if I'm right. seeing people around me in constant battle with being heard, my enthusiasm to be gritty is probably very
2: low. What do you think? Dan? I think that's true. I'm going to give another bouquet to Dr. Lee Waters, who on that same car drive where she said, believe and achieve, I was talking about how she and I had sculpted each other. There's something called the Michelangelo effect where you sculpt people (laughs) with your feedback and, And you know how they wish to be seen. You know what their dreams and goals are. And you give them feedback as they pursue those goals. And so we were talking about grit and how people build grit in relationships. And Lee said, well, that's relational grit. And I've used it ever since. That was like four or five years ago, but I give her credit too. So we do build grit in relationship to others. I don't think grit is something you form alone. I think you have role models. I think you have peers. I think you have cheerleaders, mentors hopefully. But I do think it's when you see other people doing what you want to do and doing it with dignity and self-respect and humility, it makes you want to be a follower too. So I do think grit is built in relationships, not in a silo.
0: Yeah. I totally agree. And, and as Leanne was talking before, and you've just said it there, Caroline, so thank you. I was a leader in a particular role a few years ago, and I could see other women, who were leaders but didn't think of themselves as a leader and mm. i i learned a stack of skills so many things i learned about myself in that time and had to be really gritty to be in that situation yeah. but what i've noticed is that i was continually sharing Processes and thoughts and ideas with the other people for them to raise themselves because they would say, "Oh my gosh, you're so amazing at being this leader, and I don't know how you do that. I don't want to do the same thing as you." So I was giving back to and there was this relational effect going on over and over. Like you said, that feedback, that tend and befriend, for those people to grow. And I have since seen several of those people really shine in their light, which has wow. actually inspired me again. So it's just beautiful.
2: Yeah I mean it's, that's interesting the way you describe it so you were sharing your processes processes with a group and other people were growing as a result of it you were proud of them happy for them mm-hmm. and now it's inspired you to see how far they've come so you're describing this bidirectional yes, impact yes. of of being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. of knowing each other's goals or giving Mm -hmm. that kind of exposure so that people see you beyond the superficial level and then growing together in that vulnerability. I do Mm -hmm. think that women are very good at coming together, at least history shows this, coming together to change culture to change laws we come together for big group efforts getting the vote reproductive rights Mm -hmm. history is not as full of examples of women coming together to support each other's individual goals Mm -hmm. and that's where there's a fork in the road as far as i could see in terms of how do we come together to find out what other people's individual goals are and support them, regardless mm-hmm. of you know whether or not it impacts us in a positive or negative way. We just want to be happy for them. That leads me to say that there is no word in the English language or in, I think, almost any language that means joy in another person's joy. And that was a question that was actually posed to my class by Dr. Chris Peterson back at Penn. Mm-hmm. He he co-led my entire year at Penn, which was the most amazing gift for someone new in positive psychology, but he stopped my class one day and he said, okay, people, (laughs) we all know schadenfreude means taking pleasure in someone else's pain, but what's the opposite? And I remember we were stumped. We all sat there and just stared at him. And so for 15 years, I, I went all over the world. I love words. And I just kept looking for what is the opposite of schadenfreude. And then I was in Australia, in Melbourne at the IPA conference. And I I helped to run the thriving women, thriving world, a push of inquiry summit with Dr. Diana Whitney. And right after that, I walked into a, a, a little workshop where some Israeli researchers were talking about words. And I raised my hand. I was like, is there a Hebrew word that means joy in someone else's joy? And they said, Yes, there is. And I swear to God, I felt like I had found or gotten the Willy Wonka golden ticket or I found the pot of gold. It was like, there's a word. Are you kidding a word, a word? I was like, what's the word? And they said it's an untranslatable Hebrew word. Fear gun. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Fear It means join another person's joy. Since then, my yoga teacher told me Sanskrit has a word mudita, which means something almost similar. But when you don't have a word in a language, you often don't have the behavior in that culture. Mm. And so I was just so delighted to find out that there is a word. And the fact that it's considered untranslatable still stymies me. Like, why is it so untranslatable? Why is that such a bizarre concept that we can't? Bring it out somehow. Maybe Ampliship Mm. is my effort to make fear gone. Maybe it is.
0: I think Ampliship is perfect. But maybe also as
2: we do it
1: more, we bring it to life more and then we can have more of a language.
0: And I can't
1: help but think about psychological safety. I know this for myself, Caroline, that I know where I feel safe. I also know where I feel really uncomfortable and judged, Mm. and I know that I'm not being my true self in those environments.
2: Yeah. You raise a really interesting point. I'm not sure you even know you just raised it, but I think that's (laughs) so important about psychological safety. Here's another wild thing I learned when I was writing this recent book. You know how women can just invisibly put you down Mm -hmm. and men won't have the slightest idea what just occurred. And you're feeling like you just had a drive by shooting and they're sitting there (laughs) going, isn't that person sweet? So when I was exchanging emails with Adam Grant and he was saying to me, like, aren't women just jealous of each other? Isn't that kind of the thing that you're talking about? And for nine days I went silent and I looked and looked and looked for this research. And I found research showing that, Because women learn so early to be verbally aggressive, they're not allowed to become physically aggressive. They become verbally aggressive. What they can do verbally often goes right over the heads of men. And so psychological safety needs to take into account that women can and do freeze out other women. Again, black sheep effect. You violated stereotype norms. You're ambitious. You're proud. You had a great idea, whatever it is. I not all women, but many will go silent. It has to include the fact that men often don't spot the cruelty that Mm. comes in the side door that leaves no fingerprints, but that makes Mm. you feel like you've been thrown out of the tribe. And for a woman being disfellowshipped, thrown out of the tribe is like being in existential hell because we're all supposed to have best friends in this sisterhood. We're told about from the time we're little girls.
0: Absolutely. I was thinking about that in I live in a house full of men (laughs) and I love them by the way. They're just beautiful boys. And they've got me to make sure that they behave like beautiful boys too. But Mm -hmm. they're very quick with their sarcasm on people, you know, and they call it, you know, funny jokes, where Mm -hmm. sometimes I think, oh. That's really cutting for that other person. And then there's another way to look at that. And I think that the female versus the male in how they can respond in those situations, they just think it's just normal. Oh,
2: mom, I'm just joking. I go, well, actually, that's not a joke. That's hurtful. That's what's so interesting. One of the first comments or pushbacks I always get when they say I couldn't take it anymore. I had to write a book about how to solve this problem, not just the fact that there is a problem. (laughs) is they would say, well, don't men do this to each other? Aren't men mean to each other? Don't they have those bullying kinds of comments? I was like, yes, of course they do, but it doesn't impact them the way Mm -hmm. it impacts women. And that's the whole difference. You can't say, well, men do it, so women ought to be able to do it. We have a pile Mm -hmm. of research showing that how you network as a woman can't be like how men network, how you lean in can't be the same, Mm -hmm. how you negotiate can't be the same, but how you talk back to someone or put someone down, men are have different ways of being transactional. Women are affiliative. It hurts them and it goes right back to the tend and befriend response mm-hmm. we're wired for. You know, this, this thing that Lee and I just did is actually on my YouTube channel and it was a real gift f- by her. I've been more public for a lot longer about why and how we both overcame our eating disorders mm-hmm. and uh, bulimia and why we decided to be public about it because I do believe that the shame we still attach to any woman admitting she had an eating disorder has kept a lot of women small too. We're not Mm. allowed to be imperfect. Mm. And this is a piece of what we're talking about here, which is perfect versus imperfect. Mm. I think there's too much of a stigma attached to just the eating disorders. And I went on to have a great career and a great life. So did she, so big deal. So what if I had bulimia? It's amazing how many women stay quiet when their story of overcoming and redemption could give another woman or girl hope, Mm. but we stay silent because of the pressure to be perfect. And that's a shame Mm. because it's stories that heal people and give people hope. And we need more stories, particularly about long-term recovery, because right now I think I'm just a unicorn. It's like, where are all the stories of long-term recovery? I'm not the only one, but Mm. nobody talks about it.
1: What a lovely example, Caroline, of two powerful women in our field supporting one another to be heard, to inspire others as well. Yeah, thank you so much for leading by example.
2: Oh gosh, thank you. And the stories of imperfection,
0: you know, they're there, but that's what makes us who we are. And I love a gentleman in Australia called Ben Crow. He talks about, you know, embracing your weirdness. Those imperfections are what makes us human and what connects us with each other and like you said the stories you know if you have these beautiful women that share their stories can somehow help us to you know make us understand that we are part of the human the commonality of our humanity is there and if other people have gone through a journey and have been able to you know recover whatever that might look like then there's some hope for us to be able to do the same and i think that's such a gift so thank you to you and lee that's you know, what a wonderful gift to give to so many people. It's just oh, incredible. Thank
2: you. It, it felt like I had no, no choice except to tell my story back in 1988. Cause yeah, I mean, you can see behind me where we've got video, that magazine cover I was on in 1987. Mm. I, I still hear about that because it was so shocking that any human being would allow their face or their name to be associated with bulimia. Mm. And I am, here today and alive only because I was at a 12 step meeting for compulsive eaters where a woman stood up and said, my name is Betsy and I'm recovering from bulimia one day at a time. My life began that night, February of 1984, because one woman told her story of imperfection and it made me believe that I could get better. And in that moment, and I still get goosebumps in that moment, my life began. And that's when I learned that happiness really does precede success because I had tried to overcome bulimia. I I had many, many times. I mean, it was, I was certain I would die from it and it was in my seventh or eighth year of it. I'd gone through Harvard, just, you know, billboard, you know, just looked fine, acted fine, but really empty behind me. There was nothing there and a sad life thinking if I have this, if I have that, if I make this time in swimming or whatever, then, then I'll be happy. And then I got to Penn in 2005 and there's this new research, this meta-analysis by Laura King and Sonia Lubomirsky and Ed Diener, the benefits Mm -hmm. of frequent positive affect. I'll never forget that 36 page paper. I must've read it a hundred times. All success in life is preceded by being happy first, by flourishing Mm -hmm. first. And that was when I became happy and hopeful, I had the trajectory and the rocket fuel to actually overcome my eating disorder. Before then,
0: Ah, that's
2: so beautiful. it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So positive psychology, I think, has given us research and names for things maybe we knew Mm -hmm. were true, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have the research behind it. And I feel like I've lived my life looking in the rear view mirror after I got all this research. And I started to think, oh, that's why that happened. That's why I wrote the grit book. because." when Angela's research, when she was doing her research, it was during my year in the MAP program, she was running in and out of the classrooms. So I was like, who's that? What's she doing? Oh, this thing called grit. She's she's found this thing and she and Marty are calling it grit. And and at that point I was writing, creating your best life. And I knew that the happiest people woke up to hard goals, not easy goals, hard goals. That's how people flourish as they go outside of their comfort zone and we all do it and we scan our days, whether we know it or not for, did we go out of our comfort zone? What's there to be proud of? And so when it became important about why grit mattered, I thought, well, can anyone cultivate grit? And then I thought, my God, I did, because I had success in my life before I recovered from my eating disorder, but I didn't have grit. Grit was not associated with my success. Mm -hmm. My recovery from my eating disorder was grit. And that's when I decided to write getting grit, because I thought if I could cultivate grit in my 20s with my life at stake. I think just about anybody can cultivate grit. This is not something that is born to Olympians or special people. We can all get grittier. In fact, I think we all need to.
1: This comment, leads perfectly into, and Lisa, I'm sorry, I'm going to pinch your question. (laughs) No, you're right. Um, Because it does seem that gritty people seem to bounce back from challenge and and they keep going. And we're wondering
2: if you can help us understand that, you know, the difference between good and bad grit. We've heard a bit about that. So what is grit? Well, first of all, grit and resilience are different. Resilience is kind of a short-term behavior where you're resilient and like you get back up when you fall down on the soccer field, or you choose to take a harder class, even though you didn't do well, grit is something different. Grit is a long-term behavior. And what's baked into it is this big goal. That's your goal, not someone else's goal, big goal, intrinsically motivated goal. And that you pursue it through dark nights of the soul for, for a long period of time. And you're lit up with this particular goal. So what's behind the ability to persist? First of all, you feel hopeful. There's something inside of you that's like, maybe you saw someone who did something hard, but it inspired you to do something that you knew you would not regret pursuing. So there's that, there's hope, there's passion. There's this inner light that shines inside of you. And you know that, you know, if you don't pursue it, there will be a piece of life that will forever elude you. You'll Mm -hmm. never find true joy. Then there's patience. These are people who can delay gratification. They have self-regulation or they learn self-regulation. They're not gritty about everything. They pick and choose their battles. They know what matters in life. So stupid grit is where, you are pursuing something so relentlessly you hurt yourself or others and and the the analogy i have in the book is summit fever in mountaineering where you know you get drunk on getting to the top of a mountain and even though you know the sherpas and everyone's saying there's a whiteout coming you are just drunk nitrogen narcosis and you are or you know you've got I forget. Well, nitrogen, of course, this, I think is underwater. The rapture of the deep is analogous to summit fever, but you mm-hmm. stop thinking clearly yes. and you can drag other people to their death. So stupid grit hurts yourself or other people. That is the relentless pursuit of things when conditions have changed and you don't have the humility to either consult others or learn from your mistakes. So the people with grit have a variety of things like passion, like persistence, like self-regulation. They set the right goals. They often have a team of people who support them and sculpt them. Mm -hmm. So this is the relational grit we were talking about before. And I think they have self-efficacy. They believe that even if they don't know how to do something, they're going to find a way to do it and they don't give up on themselves. And I think that's this, you know, dogged optimism and hope Mm -hmm. and this belief that you will figure something out. So those are some of the qualities that I see in good grit. And I do believe this is the last thing I'll say about good grit. I think good grit inspires people. And this is where Angela and I just took a little bit of a different road. Her definition is passion and perseverance in pursuit of long-term goals. If you think about that for even a moment, you'll realize some very bad people have fit that definition. So what I thought about, because I work with so many leaders and and individuals around the world is that the good grit I see, and that stands at the turning points in history is the kind of grit that when you witness it, we're going back to witnessing like Ampliship, when you witness people pursuing something hard, not because they're going to get a trophy or a pay raise, doing something hard with dignity, humility, self-respect, that's when you ask yourself, what if I live like that? What if I took that kind of risk? And I think in those moments, we choose to define who we want to become. And I think that's good grit is when you witness it, you're a better human being because you saw someone behaving in a way that uplifted you and and made you want to be a better person. So for me, grit is not a self-help kind of thing. It's a systems theory approach to a collective upraising of grit.
1: I totally get that that knowing there's a knowing inside that that mm-hmm. if I keep going, you know, it, some, I'm working towards something. It might be hard, but I'll keep going, I'll keep going because I've seen mm-hmm. someone else get there, you know, yes. that amplship. I love amplship. I just
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna put it up. On I'm my just warm. so
1: relating to it. I get it. It makes perfect sense that we can be inspired to grow forward, despite you know whatever that inner voice is. You know whatever we want to call it, imposter syndrome, is self doubt. You know what, whatever we want there to call is. it, yeah,
2: yeah. that yeah.
1: that amplship inspires us to move forward.
2: I can give
0: you, you know, a little bit of an example too, Caroline. In oh, and you you'll appreciate this too. Is uh, we've just had the WSL, so the World Surfing League, um, down here at our beach at Bell's Beach. I'm just pointing, like you can see it, but you can't. It's just down the road. Coming, coming. <laughs> but when there was, well, there were so many amazing surfers. But Tyler Wright was the female champion this year, and she's gone through a whole lot of hardship. But her whole story that she shared with us, and the way she had people around her, she was so her grit was huge. But she explained that whole process. And when she was explaining it, you couldn't help. But there were people crying. My husband was crying, my son. And it inspired me so much that I said to my boys, I really want to get back into surfing. And, of course, that inspired them because then they're like, "Mom, we'll take you out together. And I said, I don't want you to take me to Bells because I don't want to make a fool of myself, but I'm ready to learn again. And that inspiration was based on her story of going through struggle but still having that goal to overcome and to have the goal that she wanted to achieve. And she did it. And when she was sharing this on stage, it was so beautiful. You could watch it over and over and over. She kept looking at her family because that was who inspired her the most. So it was just that whole amplification was through many, many people.
2: Wow, that's a beautiful story. And you can just see the power of story over and over and over again. And this brings me back to why don't more women share stories of imperfection when I started to get better for my bulimia and it was literally one day, one meal, just going to restaurants and looking at other people's, you know, plates to find out, well, what's a portion? I didn't know what a portion was. I literally was like a babe in the woods. As I got better and I became more confident and I could go to restaurants and not worry about binging and purging or whatever. I remember the people, my sponsors in the program and friends said, it's wonderful that you're getting better, Caroline, but you can't keep what you don't give away. Mm-hmm. And that became my motto. And it still is. And when you talk about the surfer, I think, you know, that, that feeling of, you know, overcoming and joy and wanting to share the journey, mm-hmm. you have to give away your story so that other people can Have that joy and that hope that they can do, get back into surfing, do hard things. And so I think grit requires all of us to share our stories and to be amplifiers of other people's stories. You can just see what happens. It's a chain effect, it's just remarkable. So I love that story. It speaks to me too.
0: Yeah. Based on your our conversation today, can you recommend either an app or a book or a TED Talk podcast,
2: anything you'd like
0: to our listeners to find out a little bit more about what we've been talking about today?
2: Oh, Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, my. Well, I've mentioned my Books. I don't want to self-promote on in this moment, but they're the only ones that touch on everything we talked about. <laughs> sure. Well, I wrote, you know, creating your best life. My name is Caroline was my autobiography of overcome bulimia. Getting grit was about grit. Hashtag I have your back is only available for download on my website. That's about mastermind groups. But what I wrote down in answer to this question was calm.com. I I use an app called calm.com for meditation, for guided meditation, for loving kindness meditation, for, and just for quiet moments, still moments. I I think that during the pandemic, I just started to feel like every day was the same and there was nothing that was different from the day before. And our brains never had a comma or an exclamation point. It was always the same. And so I think we all became anxious and forgetful. At least that's what the research is showing. So I've been using calm.com a lot to just be more mindful. And I do think that there's a phrase I I was thinking about, compassionate grit, because I think there's a new form of grit that has emerged as a result of the pandemic that I think calm.com happens with. And that's when you do hard things, not because it's your intrinsic goal, but you do it because someone else will benefit, like wearing a mask you know, I'm um, staying indoors when, even if you're healthy, other people might become unhealthy because you go out when you do hard things so that other people will flourish. I think that's compassion. And I think compassion, compassionate grit is something that only comes along once every hundred years. You don't have a lot of situations like this. Wow. And calm.com really teaches you how to be the compassionate, particularly the loving kindness meditation. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much. If People want to connect to find out more about your wonderful work. What's the best way for them to connect?
2: My website has everything. CarolineMiller.com is a great place to start, get some free worksheets and buy hashtag I have your back, get other books. I'm also on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm everywhere. Thank you. you.
1: Before we do finish, we like to finish by asking our guests to share a self-care strategy that, that they're currently using one of their favorites that our listeners might enjoy as well.
2: Well, I'm going to love sharing this one. Last September, I was hospitalized for three days and I was hallucinating and very, very, very sick. It wasn't COVID, but it was very frightening. And it took three days for them to find the diagnosis to which there's no cure. It's something that lay dormant in my body and it may erupt again. I don't know. But when they said there was no cure, I decided to go to this newly purchased beach house in in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And there's a Dutch word, UTV, which means to air out your soul in windy, salty air. And that's what I did. And so I marched the beaches in the fall, the winter, the spring, and I practiced this Dutch thing, UTV, and I I really do believe that marching in the air on a beach, regardless of the weather, I aired out my soul and I readjusted my perspective on life and I got my health back. And I think that walking and just letting nature do its thing to you probably yeah. is one of the most healing things we can do for self-care. Oh,
1: Absolutely. what a what a beautiful, beautiful gift to, to end on. I As you were talking, I was knowing that feeling of that beautiful sea air uh, blowing on you. It's it's a
2: wonderful feeling. It energizes you, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God. What do they do in that air? It's got to have, like, you know, there's, is are there drugs in the air? I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I eat better. I sleep better. I think better. There's something called the cathedral effect that I learned about on this podcast, the Huberman Lab podcast. It's got to be the fastest growing podcast in the world, but it's a Stanford <laughs> School of Medicine professor and he's brilliant. But the cathedral effect is when you look up and there's no horizon and your eyes look up and it's expansive you think differently and I'm convinced I had Udwiden and the cathedral effect going all the time it's magical you know (laughs) so everyone should get out those and in Australia you have no no excuse to not get out and have some little water in your life right Mm, we talk about that
0: all the time where Mm. where I live there's a certain walk going to Bell's Beach where you get up to the top and you just look all over this ocean in front of you and when I, I always, I mean, it's such awe of it or is such an amazing concept in itself. But when I get there, if I've got one little problem or a big problem in my mind and I get there and I realize that I am one tiny, tiny little speck yeah. in this big, magnificent world. And it just lets go of any mm-hmm. ties that I have on thinking that that's a big problem. And it, I, It just goes. I don't do not think about it for the next probably seven days. It's quite phenomenal and it is that grounding. And like I said, probably some sort of drug in that air. I don't know what it is, but it just gives you that permission to let it
2: go and realize you know what? There is so much more that is great. Yeah. Puts it in perspective. There was an interesting research study where people took cameras into nature and for six or eight weeks, they took pictures of themselves at Mm -hmm. the end of the nature walk. By the end of the six or eight weeks, the pictures were so interesting. The, the background, the nature got bigger and bigger and their faces got smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And it's because we start to be awed by the grandeur of the air, the ocean, the, the nature. And I think we start to realize that we're, just small people passing through this beautiful location. And mm-hmm. I think that does take away your thoughts, your your anxieties. We mm-hmm. start to put our ourselves and our problems in perspective. So I thought it was interesting that after these nature walks, after eight weeks, there's a little tiny face in the corner of a picture <laughs> and there's a big tree and it doesn't start that way. So we change, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure.
1: Thank you so much Absolutely. for spending this time with us, Caroline. We are so grateful for for uh, having this conversation with you and looking at things from a different perspective. I've enjoyed being challenged in that way. So thank
2: you so much. Oh, gosh. Thank you, both of you. I'm very grateful that you gave me this opportunity and that you like being challenged.
0: Oh, <laughs> we do. And we love the ampler, Hang on. Ampliorship. I'm going to help challenge and and get that out in the world more. So thank you so much for
2: that. Yeah. Just, just take another woman's ideas or successes, put it on LinkedIn and just do hashtag Ampliship Ampliship. because if we don't share other people's successes, think about this, something like Mm. 70% of, of small businesses are formed by women. If we're not sharing their successes, how does it, how do they get their customers? How do they get found? How do they get asked to be, Experts are quoted and that's ampleship that's I, I look at people's social media feeds all the time, particularly the ones who say they support other women. Mm-hmm. I go look and see huh how often are they really putting other people's ideas and successes out there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can find evidence pretty easily. Mm-hmm that's something um, I need to improve on. I've been
0: trying not to go on social media for too long yeah. because otherwise I stay there and so maybe that's what I need to do is find a habit and try and make once a week or whatever it might be and
2: amplify that for women. Yeah. yeah. That makes Love a big it. difference. Yeah. It, it's it's a legacy impact too because your children see you doing it and they it starts to normalize the behavior mm-hmm. instead of the mean girls. If we normalize different behavior We won't have plays like Mean Girls opening on the same week Madeline Albright dies. I mean, Mm. give me a break. Really sad. You know? Well, thank you again. Thank you for uh, bringing your special special professionalism and your ideas and your desire to share to the rest of the world. Podcasts aren't easy. They take a lot of effort and Mm. practice. Mm. And I really appreciate that you wanted me to join you. So thank you. I I loved that
0: conversation. I love women like her. Mm. And I have heard her speak before, but never face-to-face like that. And I know Lee Waters, who we both know, amazing Mm. women together, and Mm. they had this little road trip. I remember listening to that. I think I was reading the article about it. But for her to explain it was just so inspiring. And, oh, I just wish I was in that back seat of that car, talking about tend and befriend, but also the importance of women witnessing and amplifying or that amplish that they talk about. You know, really honoring those women that are doing great things oh, and sharing that with the world. Absolutely. Because, ah, so how many women do we know that are doing great things? Yes. Like so, so many. So many. I think so that's many. going to be my goal for the next I don't know, my lifetime. To yeah, amplify I think I'm going
1: to step up and try and do that more too. Some things, I wrote down a heap of notes here. One thing is I enjoy being challenged in my thinking and I really enjoyed her perspective to help mm-hmm. me think in a different way. And I know I'll be thinking long after our chat
0: today. But Are this- you talking about when she was talking about that she doesn't really believe in the imposter syndrome? Yes. Because what I love about that, it's always been something that's been bothering me. Yes. What I've loved about using the term imposter thoughts, I didn't really love the imposter phenomenon because the research is the people who were academics, high-achieving academics back in the 1979, I think it was, mm. and they did a bit, a bit of research on, on that and then came up with that there was an phenomena, which is why these women weren't achieving as much as they could because they didn't feel they could, they thought they had these inner um, critics as such. But it has bothered me because I think, well, why was it only women that that research was completed on? And well, then we've got the Basima Tufik, who has actually done it with men and women. Yes. So her research is talking about imposter thoughts actually has an upside where we can have you're more relatable when you have these thoughts, Mm. you're more relatable with your, well, this was in the medical field. So doctors with your patients, but it still is only in little pockets of things where we're talking to people who broadening that definition of the Mm. imposter Mm. to in actual fact, we keep talking about thoughts, whether it's your inner thinking, your mindsets and so forth. So for me, it is growing. And I really Mm. love that she's, nail that about not just saying it's another thing women have to change or we're yes. not good at yes actually we do have things that we do really really well yeah and maybe if we start to amplify and use that positive psychology research where we're really looking at the things we do well and you and i have laughed and laughed and laughed about this about terming you know making that what did we achievement mapping. Yes. We don't celebrate the things we achieve. No. We need to do more of that. So it got me to thinking a little bit about that. Well,
1: I'm going to amplify you, Lisa, and say, (laughs) you know... (laughs) I love, I'm loving this journey with you and that relational grit as well. Like I I loved that terminology. So there's so much to think about here. I am, I'm excited for, you know, how we can think differently and just see things in a new light. So
0: hashtag Ampliship is such a a great thing to do. And I know all of us have people that in our arena, I would say with us, who really do that very well and who Mm -hmm. start to, you know, see who we are and really, you know, amplify that, I suppose, for us and challenge us forward. But I think it's important for me to be doing that more for others. I I know I do that slowly and gently, but I feel like it might be hidden from others where it's made me think, why am I hiding that or just doing it quite gently One to one with people. Why don't we share that with the world? Because there are some very, very incredible people that we work with. Agreed. Ah, Well, another amazing podcast, and I hope Mm. that everybody is getting some great ideas moving forward. Yes, Um, and just on and on that, keep your uh, feedback coming. We
1: love to hear from you. We love your feedback. We love your thoughts, and we love being challenged as well. So, all right. Well, bye for now. Okay. And thank you for listening to the Imperfect Us podcast. As always, we are extremely grateful to our executive producer, Brenton Ainsworth, for helping us to put this episode together. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you care about and we would be grateful if you could rate this podcast on iTunes. To continue the conversation and see what we're up to, you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Imperfect Us. Bye for now.